this concept of brokenness. We, uh, last time we worked on our first, the origin of brokenness with sin and the, just the steady decline of human history from when Adam and Eve sinned all the way until the confusion of the languages at the Tower of Babel. It was just, it was just a pretty dark period of human history going from creation and its perfection. Now we had corruption with sin and then catastrophe and the flood and then, um, and then the confusion of the languages. Um, and we cite that as the cause of all the brokenness that we see around us. But then the question is, what is the solution for brokenness? What is the solution for brokenness? Yeah, Jesus Christ, ultimately, right? That's right. So we have two more that I'd like to work through. Um, lament is what we're doing now. And then the next one will be triumph, dealing with cosmic brokenness. In other words, how God is going to make all things right on a universal cosmic level. Does that make sense? So in every realm, God will make all things right. And he does that through his son, Jesus Christ. And we're going to, well, yeah, let's, let's do that as a break off. We'll come to that. But we have this idea um, that I want to talk to us about is the idea of lament. So if you have your Bibles, go over to Psalm 88. That's where we're going to spend our time. Psalm 88. And while you're getting there, let me ask you, as far as just a general tenor of the book of Psalms, well, what is the book of Psalms? First off, Adrian? It's the Psalms of the prophets and kings, most like David, mm-hmm. who wrote songs and praises to the Lord, usually. Yeah. Or sometimes even prophecies, I think. Yeah, there's some prophecy. Songs of praise to God. So it's, it's like an inspired hymn book, right? It's the songs of the nation of Israel, how they were going to worship God. It's good. So generally speaking, the songs that we sing, as well as the Psalms, how would you describe the, the tenor or the tone of a song of praise? It, would you describe them as happy or sad? Could be both. Could be both. What would be the general consensus? Happy. Yeah, probably mostly happy, huh? And you'd, you'd be right. Um, Especially the songs we sing, we tend to sing mostly happy ones. We don't sing very many sad songs in our churches. At least not the church that I've been a part of ever. But it's interesting because the book of Psalms, it has a lot of joyful and praising songs. But it also has a lot of psalms that we call psalms of lament. Lament. Who can tell us what does lament mean? Adrian? Lament is when you... um, Yeah. Yeah, grief to the extreme. Anybody else? Yeah, it's a call for help. Those are the two big ideas of a lament. So here's the new Oxford American Dictionary definition. It's a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. So just in a secular sense, it's just expressing or calling out that grief or sorrow that we're going through. You raising your hand, Aiden? Okay. But then when we come to the biblical sense of the term lament, it's not just an expression of grief or sorrow, but it's also a call for help. So, 
for a pattern of the lament psalms, let's look at Psalm 8, sorry, Psalm 13. You don't have to go there if you don't want to, because hopefully I can do this right. Yeah, I can. Okay, can you kind of read that? Yeah, this is Psalm 13. Okay, so Psalm 13, we have, it, it gives us a really good pattern for uh, what the lament psalms are like. But I meant to show you the pattern first so that you can look for it with me. Here's the pattern. It starts with a complaint or a lament. Then it moves into a request for help. Then typically they have an expression of trust and a promise of praise. So complaint, request for help, expression of trust, promise of praise. So looking at Psalm 13, to the choir master, a Psalm of David, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Oh, sorry, the, the pens are covering it up. Because he has dealt bountifully with me. There you go. Okay, so looking for this pattern. Oh, sorry, I closed that out. Let's get back in there. Looking for this pattern of complaint, request for help, expression of trust, promise of praise. Going back now to Psalm 13, what do you notice here? Where is the complaint section? One to two. Okay, one to two. If we can get this to go. One to two is the complaint section. Then we should be looking for the request for help. Where is our request for help? Three to four. Three to four is. That's our request for help. So he goes from God, how long are you going to forget me forever? How long are you going to hide your face from me? And he talks through his complaint before the Lord. He feels God is absent and isn't listening. Then he goes and says, God, consider and answer me. Light up my eyes. But then we're looking for the expression of trust. Where is our expression of trust? Yeah, I would say just five. just five, even just the first line of five. Yeah, so... That's number three, is our expression of trust. Is, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. Then he moves into, let's see if we can do this, I don't know. Oh, look, Apple is superior, John. Then here is his promise of praise. The end of verse five and all of verse six. Okay, does that make sense? That's the typical pattern of a lament psalm. That's the typical pattern of a lament psalm, is it moves from the complaint or the lament into a call for help, then an expression of trust, and then a promise of praise. Okay, 
And interestingly, lament psalms are quite common. I didn't put it on the screen for you, but over approximately one-third of the psalms are lament psalms. That's 50 psalms if out of 150, right? That's a lot of psalms. And here's something that we're missing in our Western 21st century culture is the ability to lament, the ability to grieve. This, uh, this lesson is dealing with personal brokenness. And what lament does is it gives our suffering a voice. The psalmists, or sorry, the book of Psalms, some would say it gives full expression to every emotion that the human heart can feel. But what the book of Psalms is doing is it's taking our emotions and it's teaching us how to express our emotions Godward. Does that make sense? It's helping us learn to take our emotions to God. And that's great when it's the happy, joyful, thanksgiving emotions. But a lot of life has some sadness, grief, sorrow, anger, anxiety, worry, frustration, etc. And what do we do with those emotions? Well, lament psalms gives those emotions a voice. So it's important for us not only to study the lament psalms, but I would encourage we should even sing them. Now, let's go to Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is known as the darkest psalm in the Psalter. The darkest psalm in the Psalter. It's, it's very dark, and you'll see that as we read here. All right, it starts out. A song or psalm for the sons of Korah to the chief musician upon Mahalat Le'anot, a mashkiel of Heman the Ezraite. And we'll talk about that title in just a second. But remember, the titles in the Psalms are actually that's inspired. So that's why I read it. But then he starts out verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before thee. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear unto my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near unto the grave. I am counted with them that go down into the pit. I am as a man that has no strength, free among the dead like the slain that lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and they are cut off from your hand. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness in the deeps. Your wrath lies hard upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. Selah. And when we come across that word Selah, that, the idea of that is, pause and think about it. You have put away mine acquaintance far from me. You have made me an abomination unto them. I am shut up and I cannot come forth. Mine eye mourns by reason of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands unto you. Will you show wonders to the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Selah. Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave? or your faithfulness and destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But unto you have I cried, O Lord, and in the morning shall my prayer prevent thee. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. While I suffer your terrors, I am distracted. Your fierce wrath goes over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came round about me daily like water. 
they compassed me about together. Lover and friend you have put far from me, and mine acquaintance into darkness. So as far as uh, describing that psalm, how would you describe the tone of that one? Yeah. Yeah, very mad. Abandoned. Hurt. Sad. Yeah, depressed and oppressed. Yeah. That's not a very fun psalm to read. I mean, imagine singing that on a Sunday morning in church. I, uh, Because I knew that I was wanting to talk about this psalm this weekend, I tried to look up on Spotify um, recordings of this psalm. You know, it's one of my favorite kinds of music is people, modern artists who have taken a psalm and then tried to put it to modern music. Because I'm just, I'm not very good at understanding Jewish music, if you know what I mean. So, but it's interesting. This psalm doesn't have very many recordings of it. There's a few, and I like several of them, but it's not a very popular psalm to put to music. Yeah, I wonder why, right? Do you see now why it's often described as the darkest psalm of the Psalter? It's a really dark psalm. And it's an important psalm. So let's talk about that introduction just for a minute. Um, First off, he says it's a song or psalm. Okay, that makes sense because it's in the Psalms. It's a song for the sons of Korah. Um, It's a Korahite psalm. There's several several psalms known as the Korahite psalms um, throughout the Psalter. This is one of them. And this in and of itself, because there's not very many rays of hope in this psalm, if you didn't notice. There's just a couple. But here's one of them. The Psalms of the Sons of Korah. Does anyone remember who are the Sons of Korah? Who is Korah? A person. Yep, he's a person. Adrian? Is Korah the, the guy who instigated Korah's rebellion? Yeah, exactly. He's the guy who instigated Korah's rebellion. Remember, he leads a march against Moses. Yeah, and then the pit opens, and now the wind. Yeah, God decides to yeah. have That's yeah. The earth literally swallows Korah and his followers. Pretty, you know pretty grim illustration of what it means to rebel against God. But, well, it's, yeah. But then Numbers 26, 11, because that's Numbers 16, talks about the Korahite rebellion. But then Numbers 26, 11 tells us that there were some of the descendants of Korah who remained. They must not have marched against God and against Moses, and so they lived on. And so here's the first ray of hope of this psalm is that God can even use such a broken situation as the earth swallowing up people to bring praise and to bring a song. So there's your first ray of hope. But then he says to the chief musician or the choir master, upon Mahalat let a note. And those don't sound like English, do they? It's because they're not, they're Hebrew. So Mahalat let a note, we actually don't really know how to translate those words. Um, there's debate Um, but it may refer to sickness. Mahalat can mean sickness and affliction is how a note can be translated. So it may be a psalm related to sickness and the affliction thereof. But then finally, a mashkiel. Um, This term comes probably from a Hebrew word, sachal, meaning to have insight or to be skillful. It's related to the idea of wisdom, um, is skill in living. So it's a a skillfully done psalm. So 
either it can be um, someone who's really good at poetry and music or a psalm teaching us about wisdom and skill in living or both. Kind of cool. And then last is He-Man the Ezraite. And if you haven't read that yet, does anyone know who He-Man was? The lady, the guy actually at the lodge, he spoke my name as He-Man. He wrote my name. He forgot the R in it. It was he her He-Man. And the lady was just standing there like, I was so confused. Because I didn't call it He-Man. I was like, I'm not He-Man. That's funny. Yeah. But he must have uh, been building off yeah, this guy? <laughs> That's why I was laughing. That's interesting. Okay, so Heman the Ezraite, he was a singer. Now, there are two other Hemans in the Old Testament, but this is our most likely candidate. Um, and I'll give you a reason in just a second. He was a singer in King David's procession. Um, remember when they brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem? Remember that? And David... He sets up these massive choirs and musicians to praise God and as they bring in this Ark of the Covenant. And Heman was one of them. And he's known as Heman the Ezraite. And why do we think that Heman the Ezraite is the right candidate? Well, just look down at the title of Psalm 89. What's this guy's name? Who wrote the psalm? Ethan. Yeah, Ethan the Ezraite. And Heman and Ethan are both mentioned in the book of First Chronicles. They're brothers. And they were both involved in this temple or tabernacle worship at the time. And so putting their psalms back to back makes a lot of sense. So probably Heman the Ezraite for what it's worth. 88 is? 89. Yeah, 89 is a very long psalm. It's a good one. 89, so the Psalter is broken up into how many books? Anybody remember? Five. Yeah, it's broken up into five books. And this is the transition. Psalm 88 and 89 are in book... Uh, book 3, and then Psalm 90 starts book 4. Yeah. So these are important hinge psalms. And we don't have time to get into it, but a book as massive as 150 psalms, there has to be some pretty intentional organization, if you know what I mean. So for what it's worth, Psalm 88 and 89 are intentionally paired, I would argue. So you can go and read 89 on your own, but I love how we go from the end of 88, it finishes mine acquaintance into darkness, or another way that can be translated. Darkness is my only friend. And then we pick up 89 verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Just a stark contrast from darkness is my only friend to I will sing of the mercies of the Lord. And I don't think that's an accident. The Psalter was put together very intentionally. But for what it's worth. Okay, so when we, when we think about this category of psalm, a lament psalm, we are not just in a, we're not, they weren't designed for us just to be an observer. We aren't just supposed to read the psalm and go, wow, you know, that was his experience. What we're supposed to do is put ourselves in the shoes of the author. Empathy. Yeah, empathy is to put ourselves in those shoes. And when we experience those times of deep grief, depression, anxiety, worry, frustration, then we sing, we pick up these lament psalms and we sing them along with the psalmist. Does that make sense? That's the point of these psalms. So let's just talk through the psalm just a little bit. We won't take too, too long on it. 
But we get our second ray of hope in the psalm and really our only other one in verse one. O Lord, God of my salvation. That's about the only bright line in the psalm is that Heman, he says, O Lord, God of my salvation. What's he getting at when he calls him the Lord, the God of my salvation? What is that? Yeah, yeah. And he's calling out to him. Sorry? From his heart. Yeah. So think about this. Um, Pause that thought on the salvation. But as we read through that psalm, can you think of what sort of circumstances Heman might have been going through? To write a psalm like this, what kind of, what kind of circumstances could you imagine in his life? Extreme loss. Okay, maybe some extreme loss. Very yeah. dark. What? Very dark. Very dark. Yeah. Point of no return. The point of no return. Yeah, he does. He seems like he feels punished. Any other ideas? What did we say, Maha? Oh, go ahead, Zoe. Seeking for Well done. It's actually, if that's what Mahalat Anot means, he could have been going through some sickness or affliction. Do we know anybody else in the scripture who went through severe sickness and affliction and called out with his grief to God. Yeah. Um, Some would describe Psalm 88 as a mini Job. When you think about that, that actually, that pairs well. And if you want, you should do this. Study Psalm 88 and work through the book of Job, which is 42 chapters. There's actually whole sections that Psalm 88 either is quoting or alluding to from the book of Job. So that's pretty interesting too. But coming back to it, he says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. So first of all, as we think about this concept of dealing with personal brokenness, when we are in the dark place, when we're dealing with depression, grief, sorrow, overwhelming emotion, the truth on which we can hang our hat, the truth in which we can anchor our soul is remembering The Lord is the God of our salvation. This life doesn't promise peace, happiness, and prosperity. Because we're living in a broken world, there are people who will endure trials lifelong. They'll never have relief from trials in this life. However, this life isn't all we live for. So when he says, O Lord God of my salvation... You think of Heman, Christ hadn't come yet. They didn't know that Jesus, their Messiah, was going to die and suffer for our sins and rise again. They didn't understand all this, but they knew God had promised salvation. They didn't understand how it all was all going to happen, but we have the privilege now to look back and go, wow, God had a, just an incredible plan to redeem us from our sins. So thinking about that song, How Deep, it says you were broken 
that I might be healed. Think about this. We live in a broken world because of sin. We ourselves are broken because of sin. And Jesus, God of very God, robed in incredible glory in heaven, took on human flesh. He stepped into our broken world and he lived in brokenness. Jesus didn't live a life of prosperity and of prestige. Rather, he didn't have a place to lay his head at night. He didn't have a home. But not only did Jesus humble himself by becoming a man, but he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. The pinnacle of brokenness in a human society, executing an innocent man, torturing him before he was executed, and not only execution, but crucifixion. If you think about brokenness, it's hard to top that. But Jesus himself, God of very God, was broken so that he could remedy our personal brokenness. That sin, that corruption within us, Jesus addressed that. There is forgiveness. There is cleansing. There is salvation through Jesus Christ. And because he rose from the dead, there's hope. Even when life only has darkness to offer. Are you with me? So Heman, he says, O Lord God of my salvation. And that's, that's about the only ray of hope that we have in this psalm. The other light is that in his deep darkness, he keeps calling out to God. That's the only other hope we have in the psalm. Other than that, it's just a bunch of darkness. But let's walk through it just a little bit and think through some of these concepts. So, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. How often is he crying out? Constantly. Constantly. Have you ever had a time like that when you were so, you were in the dark place, struggling so much that you kept calling out to God all the time? Hmm. He says, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to hear my cry. We kind of get the picture. Heman's saying, God, I'm not sure if you're hearing me. Can you bend your ear and listen to my prayer? Well, why? Verse three, for my soul is full of troubles. My soul is full of troubles. And my life draws near to the grave or to Sheol. Um, we talked about maybe sickness or affliction is, is our setting here. What does he mean then when he says, my life draws near to the grave or to Sheol? He's close to dying. Yeah, he's fatally sick. He's close to dying. Have you ever been there? Where you were this close to death? I haven't. But try to imagine that. Put yourself in the shoes of the psalmist. Hmm. But then he says, well, think about Sheol. Because this, this is a profound word in Hebrew. Does anyone know what Sheol is? Isn't it like a holding place? Yeah. Yeah, it's a holding place. So Sheol, um, the best way we can probably translate it is the grave in English, but it doesn't necessarily capture it because a grave we think of as just a burial site where we put the 
corpse of a person. But in the ancient mindset, Sheol was the holding place. Okay, so if someone died before Christ, where did they go? Yeah, to Sheol. So, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. When Jesus was buried, that's where he went. Adrian? That's right. So we get that from Luke 16. Remember the rich man and Lazarus, they both die, and Lazarus is in what we would call heaven, but upper Sheol. And the rich man, he's in hell, what is lower Sheol. And they can see each other across this great expanse, but there's only torture for the rich man and only blessing for Lazarus in what's called Abraham's bosom, a.k.a. upper Sheol. Um, so the picture is exactly that, a holding area. Um, but then it's likened to a lot of different things in Scripture. Here, he views the dead... Um, in Sheol, he talks about it. He calls it the pit in verse 4. Um, he says, end of verse 5, look at this, his description of people who are in the grave. He says, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. So he views the dead as those that God's forgotten. They've been cut off. They're no longer remembered. Um, verse 11 he says, is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? And Abaddon, it's a, a noun referring to destruction or ruin. It's from the root to perish. Um, it's a parallel term to Sheol. Um, suffice it to say for now. But we get this, we get kind of this picture of darkness. Like Sheol doesn't sound like a very fun place to be, does it? He says, verse 4, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. Once again, this is a parallel word to Sheol. Um, but it, the, the picture that it gives is not just of Sheol, but of the, de the depths of Sheol, like the very bottom, like the very last cell in the prison, the darkest confines of the dungeon. He says, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. Hmm. Verse 5, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. That's some pretty deep darkness. He's saying, I'm pretty much a dead man walking. I'm already silenced. No one remembers me. And I'm just going to Sheol anyways. Verse 6, Remember, we talked about how lament is a complaint before God. It's this grief and a call for help, but it's a complaint. Verse 6, who does Heman charge with bringing him down to the pit? God, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Verse 7, your wrath, God, lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Wow. Did you ever think that you could talk like that to God in prayer? Yeah, we don't think of that very often. 
But that's why we have lament psalms, to help us learn how to take those emotions to God. Picture this. Think about it like the narrative of Job. We don't know what happened with Heman, but we do know what happened with Job. Did God bring all of those afflictions on Job? In a roundabout way, by permitting Satan to bring them, and God used those trials. As James says, we know the end of the Lord, um, his compassion, but who actually brought those afflictions on Job? Himself. Maybe himself. That's actually what Job's friends said. You've sinned and brought this on yourself. (coughs) Sorry? Yeah, the devil did. Satan says, God, I think Job, he'll forsake you if you take everything from him. So God says, okay, just uh, don't kill him. So he takes all of his possessions all of his kids, and then he takes even his health, and Job is sick near unto death. Now, what Job gets is a lesson in the, in the greatness of God, is God basically says, I'm God and you're not. You might not understand, but I always am in charge. So is Heman right in charging God as being the one who brought him into the depths of the pit? Mm-hmm. That's right. God is sovereign over everything. So in that sense, yes, God has permitted him to be in this deep darkness. It's part of living in a broken world. Part of living on sin-cursed soil is that there will be seasons of darkness. There will be seasons of sorrow. There will be struggles with grief, anger, anxiety. It's part of living on sin-cursed soil. He says, you've put me in the depths of the pit. So just notice these metaphors, what they're communicating. He talks about the depths. He says in the regions of the dark and the deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. Just picture that. God is, he feels that God is angry with him, that he's being punished. He says, your wrath, it's lying heavy upon me. It's like a weight on me because God's angry with me. Now we understand, we deserve God's wrath, his anger. There's only one solution to it. As Psalm 2 ends, blessed are all who take refuge in him, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's the only solution to God's wrath. Otherwise, God's wrath does rest upon us. But then he says, end of verse 7. This is a pretty powerful metaphor. You overwhelm me with all your waves. What's that picture? What are waves? So, but did you hear what Miss Brooks said? They come one after another. If you've ever been to the ocean, um, those waves are powerful and they're incessant. One comes and it might knock you down. And just as you start to get back up, the next one comes and you become overwhelmed very easily if you're not careful. Yeah, maybe it's more than just sickness. And I think he does. He gives us some clues in this next section of what else is going on. But picture that. He's, his, his feeling is, I'm being pummeled by wave after wave after wave. 
I feel that I'm being drowned underneath your powerful waves. Verse 8. We get a picture of what else is maybe going on. Verse 8. You have caused my companions, my friends, to shun me. What is shun? Yeah. Yeah, to dislike, not to want to be around. They forsake you. They despise you. Okay, so not only is this dude dealing with personal darkness, but his friends now hate him and have deserted him. And he says, you've made me a horror to them. Wow, that's a pretty strong word. My friends, they look at me and they go, oh, you're horrific. I'm not very good friends. I don't want to hang out with those kind of people. Right? Yeah, maybe they're even backstabbers. And he says, end of verse 8, I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. He says, there's no escape. I'm shut in. I'm trapped. My eye grows dim through sorrow. What does that mean? How does your eye grow dim through sorrow? Yeah. Just think about it from a very literal standpoint. What happens when you're sad? We cry. And if you cry enough, it starts to fog up your eyes where you don't see very good. He says, I don't see very good because I'm so sad. I'm so sorrowful. I've cried so much. My eyes have grown dim. But he says, every day I call upon you, Lord, just this constant. He's calling out to God, crying out for help. He says, I spread out my hands to you. That's the external of the internal prayer is, He's spreading out his hands to God, asking for help, begging for help. And then he asks some interesting questions here in verses 10 to 12. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? What kinds of questions are these, would you say? Miss Catherine? Yeah. And realize these are, this is interesting trying to put yourself in the shoes of an Old Testament saint because we have a lot of assurances that we take for granted. They didn't know that Jesus was going to rise from the dead and conquer death in the grave. They didn't understand that. Psalm 16 um, gives you about the only clue. It says, you will not leave my soul in hell, neither will you suffer your holy one to see corruption. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there's pleasures forevermore. That's about all the clue they had to a resurrection. I mean, come on. That's not very much hope. Death sounds pretty dark. It sounds like the end, right? So he's asking these questions, and I think he's genuinely saying, Lord, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? What happens when I die? Am I going to still praise you? I don't know. Just try to put yourselves 
in human shoes. That's a dark place. But let's try to answer these questions. Because while they might have been rhetorical questions for Heman, he didn't know that he was going to get an answer. These questions we actually have some answers for because we have a whole lot more of our Bibles. I mean, think of your, where's my paper Bible? I lost it. Snap. Think of your Bible. He had like that much of it from Genesis to, well, he doesn't even have, he would only have part of 2 Samuel at this point, maybe just 1 Samuel. That's not very much scripture, is it? He seems to have read the book of Job. He's probably read Genesis through Deuteronomy. And that's about it. Maybe Joshua and Judges. But we have a whole lot more scripture than that. And we have a whole lot more truth that's been revealed. So let's answer these questions. Does God work wonders for the dead? Yeah, how so? Adrian? He kind of answered that um, through Jesus going down and he died. He, it says that he went to Sheol to right. bring those back. But yes, that is a yes. That's right. Amen. It's a firm yes. God does work wonders for the dead. Not only did Jesus rise, but just as Jesus rose, he could lead captivity captive. He could bring these people who were waiting in Sheol and bring them to heaven. And he will resurrect everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Well, actually, everyone will get resurrected, but some will be resurrected to eternal fire. But we'll look at that tonight. So yeah, God does work wonders for the dead. He can raise them from the dead. Okay, well, what about end of verse 10? Do the departed rise up to praise you? You tell me. Can the departed or the dead praise God? Even the martyrs do. They praise him at the end time. That's right. That's right. So yeah, the dead can rise up and praise God. Uh, verse 11, is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? And I already talked about Abaddon, right? It's the idea of to perish, destruction or ruin, another synonym for Sheol. So is God's steadfast love declared in the grave? His faithfulness in Abaddon? Zoe's saying yes. What do you think, Zoe? Mm -hmm. What makes you think that? Um, just like what is this really saying? Like the martyrs praising him and, you know, his work works in the grave. Amen. Like the martyrs in Revelation. Um, Revelation 4 and 5 is kind of, it's a throne room scene. And these ones around the throne are declaring that God is worthy to receive all worship because he's the one who created. And then worship turns to the lamb in chapter five and says, you are the lamb who was slain and therefore you're worthy of worship. So yes, even in death, God's steadfast love and his faithfulness are proclaimed. What about no, verse 12? Are your wonders, his mighty works, are they known in the darkness? or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? In other words, rephrase that question at the end of verse 12. When I die, am I gonna remember God's righteousness and his miracles in this land of forgetfulness? That's his metaphor for death. Will we remember the mighty works of God? Mm -hmm. Yeah. If the Christians 
That's right. Amen. And the people who aren't are going to really wish they had believed it in this life. That's what we get with Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man says, boy, I wish I'd have made the right decision, but could you go tell my brothers? We should probably look at that sometime, Luke 16. It's really good. Um, okay, but notice he's using some metaphors for death and for this despair that he's feeling. We've got the metaphors. Well, what metaphors have you noticed so far? Okay, the ocean, these waves. And it also talks about water down in 17. Yeah, it does, down in 17. They, he says, your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. That's more like a simile than a metaphor. You know, saying darkness is my only friend. Yeah, I think that's a very powerful metaphor that he closes the psalm with, is that darkness is my only friend. So we have these metaphors of water, with the idea of drowning. We have this metaphor of darkness. Any other metaphors that you see? Like darkness means death, almost. Mm -hmm. Darkness, death is my only way to escape. Mm. Yeah. What's he call the land of the dead? The land of? Sheol. Yeah, Sheol, uh-huh. End of verse 12, he calls it the land of? land of forgetfulness. So he's giving us some metaphors and these help capture the experience of despair, of depression, of severe anxiety, is darkness, drowning, forgetfulness, abandonment. Adrian? Yeah, the land of oblivion. That's a pretty, uh, that's, a, that's a, a verbose word. Has a lot of descriptive power in it. The land of oblivion. But then verse 13, he says, But I, O Lord, cry to you. He has these questions that remain unanswered for Heman. <clears throat> we thankfully get the answers to him. But he says, In spite of these plaguing questions, I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. When I wake up and I feel this darkness just sweep over me again, when I feel that I'm drowning beneath the waves of abandonment, Lord, I cry to you. My prayer comes before you in the morning. He asks another question, verse 14. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Again, he's feeling abandoned. My soul is being cast away. And he feels forgotten. God's hiding his face from him. Verse 15, afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. How long does he say that he's been afflicted and close to death? Since his youth. I mean, picture that. Since this guy was a kid. If we take the, the thought of sickness, he's been sick and struggling with some sort of affliction since he was a little kid. And now he's an adult writing this song. And he says, and I'm still struggling from my youth up, and I'm ready to die. I suffer your terrors, I'm helpless. He says, your wrath has swept over me, your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. Try to picture yourself being surrounded by a flood of water, an overpowering force. You can't swim against it. 
you can't escape, and it surrounds you, it encompasses you. They close in on me together. And then verse 18, he says, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. He comes back to this aspect. Not only do I feel that God has forsaken me, Eamon says, <clears throat> but my closest friends, they also have forsaken me. They shun me. They hate me. They stab me in the back. And he says, but I do have one friend, darkness. Darkness is my only friend. That's a pretty dark psalm, isn't it? John? That's why God gave us this song. Mr. Bob? You kind of listen to it. The only thing he can identify with living for is the Lord being the salvation. Mm -hmm. It kind of just shows you if that's all he has, he has nothing else to live for. Yeah. I kind of wonder if, if it's a message to us who maybe we don't feel as bad as this, but for those that are building on the sand, Other thoughts, discussion, questions? <clears throat> yeah. Doesn't that bring some power to that metaphor that God says, you are the light of the world? A city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. This world is full of darkness. Without Christ, there is no reason to live. There's no hope. And God's called us to be a light shining in that darkness, to offer and extend hope to the world. Other thoughts? This psalm teaches us a lot of important truths. The theology that it teaches us is that God is our, the God of our salvation. That's the primary attribute of God that Heman holds forth. God, I feel abandoned, but I know you're the Savior, the one who can save. But it teaches us a lot about our experience as believers in the one true God. Some Christians tend to teach, or at least make it seem like, if you're a true Christian, you will never struggle. You'll never be depressed. You'll never, dis you'll never reach times of darkness or despair, or even suicidal thoughts. Heman sounds very much like he's struggling with, what's the point of life? But realize... A true Christian can experience these feelings of deep darkness, like they're drowning in their affliction, like they've been forsaken by God and family and friends. And not only that, not only can true Christians experience these feelings, but some Christians may struggle with depression for life. Just because you're struggling with depression doesn't mean that you're not trusting God. And just because you're trusting God does not mean that depression automatically goes away. Because we live on sin-cursed soil in a broken world in the midst of broken people awaiting God to heal our brokenness ultimately, 
There will be times of darkness, and it might even be lifelong. And in the darkness, there's only one light. We can't look for escape or relief as our greatest goal. Trust in the God of our salvation. That's the aim. But what this does is it hopefully helps us have, first of all, it gives a voice to our suffering. Maybe you're not struggling with darkness or depression right now, but if you live long enough, there will be times that you go through things that bring you to thinking and feeling and even maybe saying things like what Heman says. You may feel abandoned, drowning, like darkness is your only friend. And what a lament psalm does is it gives a voice to that suffering. It helps us be able to take those feelings of darkness, despair, and abandonment and call out to God and say, God, I cry to you day and night. When I wake up in the morning, my, my prayer comes before you. You're the God of my salvation, but I'm struggling with darkness. So it gives voice to our suffering, and hopefully it gives us compassion for the people suffering around us. The outward appearance that you see on people's faces is not always what they're experiencing. And you might speak a sharp word or uh, make a joke that isn't supposed to hurt deep, but it might hurt deep. And they might feel that their friends have forsaken them. And sometimes what it helps us do is to think about what people might be experiencing around us and to just speak a little more softly, a little bit more caring. We might pe tell people that we love them, that we care about them a little bit more often. Because there's a lot of people struggling with the darkness. And I have a pastor friend, he often says, the darkness out there is mighty thick but so is gospel hope. And every time you read your Bible, you'll find that Jesus wins. Darkness will not prevail. On this earth, it might feel like it, but the war's already been won. We're just finishing the battles. Jesus Christ is the victor. Light triumphs. Well, how's that for the darkest psalm? One thing to note, we, we talked about that pattern at the beginning of how it, uh, well, I can show you back to the slide, that pattern of how it goes from complaint to um, request for help, expression of trust, and then a promise of praise. Why do you think Psalm 88 is called the darkest psalm? Yeah, it's pretty much just complaint and a request for help. Yeah, they tried to skip the last two. Yeah. <laughs> Heman forgot the structure. Oh, shoot. Don't worry, this is an inspired psalm, so that means it's God's word and God didn't make a mistake. But that's why it's so dark, is because we, verse one gives us a little expression of trust. Oh Lord, God of my salvation, I cry to you day and night. But other than that, we miss out on number three and number four. So Right? But do notice how it transitions into Psalm 89. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. 
Let me give you the final ray of hope for Heman. It's uh, doubtful that Heman wrote this in the depths of despondency. God did eventually bring him out of that darkness. But then he writes this psalm to help us when we're in the darkness. How do we deal with it? And that's why I called this one dealing with personal brokenness. Lament. It gives a voice to our sufferings, to the brokenness we feel. And one more comment. One more comment. Lament psalms are not just for, for expressing our personal brokenness and experience of suffering, but they're also the voice that we cry out with when we see the brokenness around us. When we see those abortions skyrocketing like we talked about in the last one, when we realize how many people are suffering and dying, the wars, the corruption in this world, lament psalms help us take that to God and say, God, we know you see this, but we're struggling. Please help. So, and they're a third of your Psalter, so they're worth studying. Any final comments, thoughts, or uh, nasty remarks? Nasty remarks. Right? Oh, you must have been sleeping when I said that last time. No. <laughs> in my eyes, I couldn't see the TV. There's a cat right there. Remember? There is.